Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, just when you thought the Delta variant was our biggest problem, say hello to Omicron, the latest COVID-19 variant of concern. More firings in the Hamilton Hospital system for those still refusing the jab, and an attempt to boycott an ice cream business backfires as customers appreciate its pro-vaccination policies. We're getting a clearer picture on who will and won't be running again in the next Ontario election in June. All the parties are encouraging us to embrace battery-powered cars, but is there another alternative we should be pursuing? And finally, 25 years ago today, the craziest leadership convention ever began at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, and it didn't end until 4.30 in the morning the next day. Do you remember who won? We'll give you all the details on this Tuesday, November 30th, 2021, so let's get to it. JMM, what was that line from the ad for the movie Jaws 45 years ago or so? They said something like, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. And then, of course, the great score from John Williams would begin with, da-dum, <laughs> da-dum, bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum. Anyway, it feels, like, it feels a lot like that right now when it comes to COVID, because just when you thought we were doing so well on the vaccination front, the fourth wave isn't over, but it's also not overly filling up our ICUs. And here comes Omicron. What's the 411 there? Just as an aside, I waited far too late in my life to actually watch Jaws for the first time. And uh, if you're, you know, younger than 30, I would say, you know, find a way to watch it. It's really very good. <laughs> it came out when I was 15 and I saw it right away. And OMG. <laughs> anyway, back on the path. So on Omicron, um, you know, there is just so much that we don't know right now, uh, except for the variant. And I, I like saying its name, the, the, the Omicron variant. It sounds like a thriller novel or a straight to Netflix movie. Um, but we can do a brief rundown of what we do know, uh, though I'm going to caution our listeners that things are evolving very quickly. And if you are listening too long after we publish, it might already be out of date. Uh, so this latest variant uh, may be more easily spread among people than the Delta variant is. And remember that uh, Delta, which already makes up effectively 100% of the cases in Ontario, uh, was itself already more transmissible than previous variants. Uh, Omicron was first detected and identified in South Africa in the midst of a spike in cases there. So there's uh, some uh, supposition that Omicron might be responsible for the spike in cases, but we don't even really know that yet. Uh, Omicron was quickly confirmed in other Southern African countries, and before long it was identified in places like Hong Kong, Israel, Israel, uh, Australia, and the Netherlands. By Sunday evening, of course, uh, the Ontario government said it had confirmed two Omicron cases in this province. And on Monday morning, the province's chief medical officer of health, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, announced that the province is investigating four other cases as well. Uh, first thing we need to follow up on is where things stand as it relates to travel restrictions. What can you tell us there? 
Uh, right. I mean, we've seen this now so many times uh, in this pandemic that it's no surprise that uh, governments around the world have responded with various uh, travel restrictions. Uh, in the case of Canada, the federal government uh, has announced travel restrictions for seven African countries as we record this, uh, barring visitors from those countries and requiring any citizens, permanent residents or indigenous people to quarantine for 14 days if they return from one of those countries. Premier Doug Ford and his government uh, have been calling on the feds to also reimpose mandatory testing measures to try and uh, catch cases of COVID at the airports. So clearly lots of governments around the world and here in Canada are alarmed by this new variant. What is, maybe let's get to the medical side of this, what's so different about it that has them all so worried? One of the few um, confirmed things that we know about this variant is uh, something that we can state relatively uh, definitively is that it has a number of mutations on uh, the the so-called spike protein uh, that both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines target. Uh, The worry for governments uh, right now is that those mutations uh, could make it possible for it to spread more quickly uh, and potentially even evade the protection offered by those vaccines. Uh, Though I I really want to stress that's not confirmed. That's just an anxiety uh, that uh, global public health uh, has warned about. Um, there are also uh, potentially some uh, be- some better news, uh, but it, again, not confirmed. But there are some reports that while uh, Omicron spreads faster than previous variants, it might produce milder illness and be uh, less likely to result in hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, that would obviously be good news of a sort if it's true. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, we're going to be operating in the dark for at least a few more days, possibly weeks, until we have a, a better sense of what this variant actually does. In which case, given all this, can we expect Ontario to put back some of the public health measures that have been relaxed in recent months? Uh, not according to the province's chief medical officer. Uh, Dr. Kieran Moore spoke to reporters on Monday morning and said that the government is going to wait and see, essentially, uh, and not act until we know more. Um, as has been true really since the beginning of the pandemic, the government's primary concern is conserving intensive care capacity in the hospitals. So if it turns out that Omicron does not cause as many severe cases, doesn't require uh, hospitalizations or especially ICU beds as, uh, as as frequently, then from the province's perspective, from the government's perspective, uh, more serious public health measures may not be necessary. Gotcha. All right, let's talk vaccinations. You know that uh, on a few occasions I've had us return to the story in Hamilton where the corporation that runs most of the city's hospitals has told its employees, get vaccinated or you're fired. And yet there are a stubborn few who decline to do so. Well, today's the deadline, November 30th, and the CEO of Hamilton Health Sciences, a guy by the name of Rob McIsaac, who's a former politician, he tweeted this week, Hamilton Health Sciences has provided more than enough time for everyone to comply with its policy to be fully vaccinated. Almost 97% of our workforce has respected this mandate to protect our patients, our co-workers, and our community. There is still time to act for those who are unvaccinated, please visit your local vaccine clinic ASAP. Today, as we suggested, is the deadline by which all hospital workers had to be vaccinated. Uh, They're still waiting to find out how many still haven't. What I found interesting, though, JMM, is the response on social media to the hospital's position, and maybe you could share some of those with our listeners. I'll just read a handful of the responses on Twitter to Rob McIsaac's tweet, uh, but they are, um, I I would say, generally uh, of this same view, if not uniformly, uh, 
one person said, quote, stay your ground. Keep doing what you're doing, Rob. Uh, Great job, sir. Proud of HHS and their stance. Thank you for your unwavering leadership. This puts patient and staff safety first. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany tweeted, well done. And a reminder, this is the hospital making this decision. Uh, The province declined to make this a general policy for hospitals everywhere, uh, despite the fact that the Ontario Hospital Association wanted it. Uh, They may reconsider that decision if Omicron turns out to be uh, as scary as some are worried. Uh, But for now, uh, that's the state of it. Let's do more on the vaccine mandate story. I'm not sure how many of our listeners have heard of Chapman's Ice Cream, whose manufacturing plant is in Markdale, Ontario. That's up near the Bruce Peninsula. Well, they announced to their employees last week that anyone who was vaccinated would get a $1 an hour pay raise. And JMM, I'm assuming all our listeners can guess what happened next. Do tell. As you might imagine, in the current environment, uh, these kinds of uh, uh, policies get spread very rapidly. Uh, somebody got a, a hold of a photo of the uh, the announcement posted on a wall at a Chapman's plant. Uh, anti-vaxxers got a hold of the photo. Uh, they shared it widely on social media, and the company started receiving uh, complaints. Uh, they had their social media flooded with negative reviews. And then news reports started to come out about the company being the target of anti-vaxxers, and uh, suddenly the switch flipped. Uh, Suddenly the company was flooded with positive uh, notes and positive reviews. Uh, The company has told the Globe and Mail that they think the the ratio of uh, positive to negative feedback is now something like 20 to 1. I mean, this is something the People's Party found out in the last federal election, right? The the fact is that this vaccine issue is basically an 80-20, maybe 85-15 issue. The vast majority of people are on the pro-vaccination side of this thing. So the anti-vaxxers have got their hands full if they're trying to run the typical, uh, what do they call it, um, uh, when, when everybody piles on, I guess a Twitter pile on, yes. uh, against this company. <laughs> well, I, I mean, th- these things are more complicated for governments and hospitals, but you know, Chapman's purpose in life is pretty simple. They want to sell ice cream. <laughs> and if their choice is to sell ice cream to the you know, 90% almost of people over 12 in Ontario today uh, who have been vaccinated or anger the 10% uh, who have not been vaccinated. I I mean, just as a business, this is not a hard call. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. All right. We're still a little over six months away from the next provincial election in Ontario, but we are starting to get a better idea of who will not be running next time. JMM, who's on the list? So this is really interesting because we are starting to see, um, uh, I don't know, I guess the the, the news uh, uh, joke is that three makes a trend. And we've got at least four sitting uh, progressive conservative MPPs. These are people who are still in the caucus. So we're not talking about people who were expelled from uh, the party, though there's a few of those, obviously. Uh, These are people who are still, you know, PC MPPs in good standing uh, who are choosing not to run again uh, in next year's election. Uh, We have uh, Jim McDonnell, who uh, announced earlier this year he will uh, not be running again. Uh, Norm Miller of Perry Sound, Muskoka. Uh, Randy Pettipiece, uh, the MPP for Perth Wellington, uh, and uh, a bit of a different context, uh, Gila Marto, the MPP for Thornhill. Uh, she's been, I would say, pretty um, publicly critical of uh, the Ford government. She, I think, um, doesn't have a, a great relationship with the Premier's office, uh, but she is still a, a PC MPP, and she holds a GTA riding. And if she's not running again, that's at least hypothetically, uh, a writing that uh, another party might be able to pick up. Although, I got to say, Thornhill's a pretty safe progressive conservative seat. 
It, it's, it is. And, you know, uh, uh, certainly as far as GTA writings go, I mean, Marteau held that riding even after the 2014 election when the Tories lost a, a lot of seats uh, around the province. So I, I don't think that the, the Tories have to, to worry about that. Um, but, you know, it is interesting that we're seeing a, a sort of a, uh, I would say, a mix of uh, people you know, choosing not to run again, though uh, McDonnell, Miller, and Pettipiece, uh sort of make a bit of a package in the sense of that the, these are um, guys who, who represent rural ridings. Uh, they've generally held their seats for a pretty long time. Uh, and, you know, after it's been a difficult uh, time in government for uh, the PC party, uh, you know, the, the pandemic has been difficult for even, you know, MPPs, uh, you know, I, I could understand them opting uh, not to take another kick at the can. I think a few more names we might want to also inquire about, uh, one of whom has made it clear he's not running again, and that's Jim Wilson, now sits as an independent, but has been a progressive conservative for many, many years. He first got elected in 1990, representing a riding up around Collingwood, and he is not running again. But a couple of independents, Randy Hillier, Roman Babber, both of whom have been really outspoken critics of this government, having initially been elected as progressive conservatives. I have not heard anything about whether the two of them intend to run again. Have you? Uh, my understanding is that uh, at least uh, Mr. Hillier uh, does intend to run again. Uh, something about li- licensing the uh, People's Party uh, uh, brand provincially. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, last I heard, uh, he, he was in fact uh, intending to run again. I, I, don't, I, I don't think he's going to have an easy time running outside of the uh, conservative brand, uh, but he Randy Hillier also has his own brand, and uh, maybe it will save him in that riding. (laughs) Well, one person who surely is running next time is Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, who, of course, has not had a seat in the legislature since losing his York Region seat to Cabinet Minister Michael Tobolo in the 2018 election. Del Duca has said over and over that he intends to contest his old seat of Von Woodbridge next June. But guess who's still not nominated to be the Liberal candidate in Von Woodbridge? Uh, Based on the setup, I'm going to say Stephen Del Duca. (laughs) You are a smart guy. That is exactly right. Yeah. Now, I should add, there's nothing particularly nefarious about this. Um, John Michael, when I was your age, it was typical for candidates. Don't you love it when I start answers with when I was your age? (laughs) But that was a couple of decades ago. And it was typical for candidates not to be nominated for their ridings until sometimes the election campaign had actually begun. Nowadays, that's considered a terrible faux pas because part of showing how ready and organized you are is to have candidates nominated anywhere from six to 12 months before Election Day. Still, having said that, it is a bit odd that the Liberals are being nominated all over Ontario, but not the leader. You know, I'm just remembering the 2018 election cycle. Uh, Stephen Del Duca, if I remember correctly, also didn't get nominated in his seat until relatively late in the game. And but his nomination pulled in a lot. Uh, like this is a small, like local writing nomination meeting, and he still, I think, he pulled in Jean Chrétien. Like it, there were big liberal names involved, and it was sort of a, a, a prelude. I think many of us saw to his leadership run uh, after the uh, 2018 defeat. There's some speculation that Del Duca may be looking for a different seat to contest, no matter how many times he says he's running in Vaughan Woodbridge. Uh, we know there was at least some discussion about uh, Del Duca potentially running in Don Valley East when Michael Cotto announced his run for federal politics. Uh, But that window has closed, and I I can't imagine we're going to see a by-election between now and Election Day. Um, 
perhaps Del Duca is concerned about another contest with Michael Tabolo, right? Uh, Tabolo won the seat with just over 50% of the vote last time. And, you know, even if Del Duca is confident about his chances uh, in a rematch, you know, I'd understand if the Liberals were at least looking around a little bit. Uh, in any case, until he is nominated in Vaughn Woodbridge, uh, these are the kind of questions uh, you and I are going to be asking. Indeed, they will be. Well, let's stay with the Liberal leader for this next item. Del Duca announced last week that if elected, his party would create an $8,000 incentive for buying or leasing a new electric vehicle and a $1,500 rebate on home charging equipment. The NDP and the Green parties have also promised incentives for electric vehicle purchases. So if this issue is important to you, it does set up a bit of a showdown, right? Uh, yes, because the progressive conservatives under Premier Doug Ford uh, continue to express skepticism about the idea of uh, electric vehicle rebates. It was one of the first things Ford did in 2018 when uh, his party won government. Uh, he canceled all of the rebates that the previous liberal government had brought in. Uh, they also pulled electric car chargers out of go stations, uh, and their opposition to EVs and uh, Tesla in particular actually landed them in, in court. It was a case that Tesla won. Uh, basically, the car maker. Uh, claimed that they were being treated unfairly, and a court agreed. Uh, you know, so if Ford doesn't change his position on this issue, um, we now have a, a really sort of clear contrast between uh, the NDP liberals and Greens on one side and the PCs on the other. Um, of course, the federal liberal government does offer a rebate on the purchase of EVs, uh, which they decided to do uh, in part because Ford cancelled the previous provincial rebates. Um, I, I do also want to just add, I mean, this is sort of like a replay of the 413 where the opposition parties are all united in their opinions on the 413 highway and Doug Ford and the progressive conservatives have the the opposite view. And once again, I mean, even if, uh, let's say, 60% of people love the idea of EV incentives, the, the Tories can be quite happy to let three parties split the 60% popularity of EV incentives if there's 30 to 40% of people who are opposed but they, 100% of them go for the Tory brand. This moment seems to call for a Bill Davis anecdote, and I'm going to give you one. Okay. Because we haven't had one yet in our podcast today. What did I do to invoke this? <laughs> well, you, you invoked the Davis strategy, which always was to keep his opposition as evenly matched as possible. And if for whatever reason the liberals were getting a little bit too strong, Mr. Davis would go after them and he'd say some very nice things about Stephen Lewis and the NDP in hopes of getting the NDP numbers up and the liberal numbers down. And that has been the success of the progressive conservative party uh, through much of the 20th century. And, um, and now, you know, here they are back in power in 2018. The notion that they can stay in power for a long time if they manage to keep the liberal NDP and now green vote somewhat evenly split, because you're quite right. If 60% of the people are on one side of it, but it's split among three parties, and if the 40% is all centered around the progressive conservative party, you got to like those odds if you're a PC supporter. Now, if people want more information on this, they can read this week's On Poly newsletter, which we can link to in the show notes. And in case you didn't know, JMM and I do a weekly On Poly podcast, which you're listening to right now, plus a weekly On Poly newsletter, which you can subscribe to on the assumption that you just can't get enough of us. I, I can't imagine people wanting that much of us, but apparently we are well subscribed. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. And just finally, you know how sometimes we like to march down memory lane on this podcast? Couldn't help but do that on this edition because 25 years ago today, the craziest leadership convention I ever covered began at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto 
It was 2,500 Ontario Liberal delegates gathering to choose a new leader after they'd lost the 1995 election to Mike Harris's Progressive Conservatives. And uh, what made it the craziest convention ever? I'm so glad you asked. Well, (laughs) imagine this. The top three candidates, they were all Liberal MPPs, Gerard Kennedy, Joe Cordiano, Dwight Duncan. They all disliked each other so much, as did all of their supporters, that none of their campaigns could gather any momentum at the convention. So as the other candidates dropped off the ballot, none of them went to them. And so the fourth place candidate ended up winning. And his name was, drumroll please, Dalton James Patrick McGinty Jr. Yes, you heard that right. McGinty was in fourth place on the first ballot, and he was in a worse fourth place on the second ballot. And yet somehow on the fifth ballot, he won the whole thing at 4.30 in the morning. I have to believe that's unprecedented. Indeed it is. And uh, I, I'm you know, recalling back 1976, Joe Clark won his convention uh, over actually the father of the current Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and Brian Mulroney. But he came from third place. Stéphane Dion won in 2006 over Bob Ray and Michael Ignatieff once again coming from third place. No one had ever won from fourth place until McGinty did it in a convention that began on one day and ended on another. In fact, John Michael, the convention began in one month (laughs) and ended in another. Started in November 30th, ended December 1st. And of course, McGinty would go on to win three straight elections for the Liberals, 2003, 2007, 2011, making him the most successful Liberal premier in nearly 120 years. And, you know, McGinty is one of those cases I cite to caution political parties against tossing their leaders after one disappointing election. The Liberals lost in 1999, and and Dalton McGinty's performance, I think even his admirers say it wasn't a great election for him. Uh, And the political history of this province would be very different if they had decided that McGinty didn't deserve uh, a second uh, kick at the can. In fact, I think I'm trying to remember back now, uh, Aaron O'Toole, the federal conservative leader, was a guest on the agenda several weeks ago. And at the end of the interview, I asked him sort of a pop quiz question. What do all the following have in common? And I think I said Lester Pearson, Stephen Harper, Dalton McGinty, Bob Ray. I think I had a couple other names on the list. I said, what do they all have in common? And to his credit, he got the answer. He said they all lost the first time out and then won. And uh, quite true. And obviously... Aaron O'Toole's hoping to be in the same category. Can I uh, say one ad- one additional thing? This is totally yeah. off the beaten. Like, this has nothing to do with the podcast uh, or, or even Ontario politics. On Friday night, I sit down to watch this very silly movie on Netflix with my wife. It's a, like a, a Christmas uh, Hallmark uh, romance movie. Uh, and uh, it involves a castle in Scotland. And I think to myself, oh, great. I can totally tune out my job. I don't need to think about Ontario politics or pandemics or anything. And then one of the main characters, their family surname is McGinty. (laughs) I can't escape. (laughs) No, you can never get away from on Polly. I'm afraid not. Uh, If people would like to read more about the craziest convention I ever covered, please go to our website. That's tvo.org slash the agenda. Had a chance to talk to Mr. McGinty a week or so ago about that crazy night, November 30th, 1996. And you'll find the story there. Now, normally, this is the part of the podcast where we ask you to leave us a rating or a comment, and we will do that. But this week, we're going to do something a little different as well, because today is Giving Tuesday. And TVO is a charity that relies on the support from listeners such as you. So if you're enjoying what we do and you have a few bucks you'd like to kick in, you can head to tvo.org slash Giving Tuesday. 
We'll put the link in our show notes as well. And if you donate before midnight tonight, that's before midnight Tuesday, November 30th, your donation will be matched dollar for dollar by a couple of very generous people who've had a great relationship with TVO over the years, Diane Blake and Stephen Smith. They are matching donations up to $75,000. So again, if you'd like to donate, the address is tvo.org slash Giving Tuesday. And as soon as I finish recording this podcast, I'm going to head there myself. We do also appreciate ratings and comments if you'd like to leave us one of those, uh, or you can email us at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now, my quote of the week. And last week, for the first time, vaccinations were offered to children aged 5 to 11. And while there was a lot of uptake, the rollout was, what shall we say, not exactly without its problems. Here's Waterloo MPP Catherine Fife from the NDP, rather unhappy about the fact that Manitoba somehow managed to figure out how to pre-register kids to enable a smooth rollout, but Ontario did not. As I said today, 75,000 children were pre-registered in uh, Manitoba. Uh, We should have been doing that as well here in Ontario. And then when the vaccines arrive, we get them into the arms of kids. And we make it a user-friendly experience that has few barriers so so that we vaccinate the most children and we keep them safe. And we keep schools open. We keep the economy open. That's Waterloo MPP Catherine Fife last week at Queen's Park. Uh, And here's my quote of the week from the province's chief medical officer of health on why he doesn't currently foresee a need to bring back stronger public health measures. The good news in all of this is that the impact on our hospital system uh, is manageable at this point. Uh, We we, um, have intensive care unit capacity. We're watching those numbers like a hawk. Um, uh, But uh, the the length of stay for these individuals in the intensive care unit is getting shorter. There are younger people now in the intensive care unit, sadly, that were not vaccinated for the most part, but uh, their um, uh, recovery seems to be uh, quicker and their mortality seems to be less. So at the present volume of cases that we have, uh, I'm, uh, I would love to see them less and more people vaccinated, uh, but we're doing relatively well. That's Dr. Kieran Moore, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, speaking at Queen's Park on Monday. And that's this week's episode of the On Poly Podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, watch out for Omicron. No, he doesn't say that. He <laughs> says, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>